I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Anita Diamond, who is a novelist, journalist, essayist, as well as the author of five guidebooks to contemporary Jewish life on such topics as weddings, parenting, conversion, and mourning practices. As a journalist, her feature stories and columns in the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere covered a wide variety of topics from profiles of prominent people and stories about medical ethics to first-person essays about everything from politics to popular culture, from pet ownership to food. Anita's best-known book, The Red Tent, published in 1997, is a novel inspired by the brief yet provocative story about Jacob's only daughter, Dina, from the Book of Genesis. The book became a word-of-mouth and New York Times bestseller thanks to reader recommendations, book groups, and support from independent bookstores, and has been published in more than 25 countries, as well as adapted as a two-part, four-hour miniseries by Lifetime TV. Her latest book, published just this year, is Period, End of Sentence, The New Chapter in the Fight for Menstrual Justice, which is the topic of today's interview. So, Anita, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me this morning. So how did the idea for writing period end of sentence come to you and how did it develop? It started by my watching the Academy Awards in 2019 when a movie called Period End of Sentence won the Academy Award for sh short documentary. And I was really smitten when the director who when she went up to get the, the statuette said, I can't believe a movie about periods just won an Oscar. And I leaped off my couch and was very excited and watched as the, the audience, especially the women in the audience at the Oscars, stood up and applauded and roared. So I thought, how interesting. And then the next day I watched the documentary, which uh, is still, I think, on Netflix for free and, and on YouTube, uh, probably on their YouTube channel as, as well. And it's a really wonderfully well-made, obviously, documentary about a small village in India that received a small pad making machine and the way that uh, transforms the village and the way it also uncovered how little people knew about what menstruation was in the first place, not just boys and men who could barely say the words, but also women and girls who were uncomfortable talking about it. So it was a very powerful short piece. So that, that was that. Uh, about three weeks after I saw that, I got a phone call from my agent because the pad project people who were responsible for making the documentary, which is another story, had uh, asked her if she would be in touch with me to ask if I might be interested in writing a book, an accompanying book uh, inspired by the movie um, of the same title. And I said, yes, I actually didn't have a project I was working on. I had written a couple of articles about menstrual injustice in different parts of the world. And so I was, I said, I'm interested in exploring it. And so got to know um, only, <laughs> only on Zoom and by phone because we were quickly into COVID, the organization and what this book might be. So I spent COVID, <laughs> the lockdown, working on this book. So that's, the, that's how this came to be. It was not my idea. It sort of fell in my lap at the right time. And I'm very grateful that it did. Well, what, what an honor you know, to be approached to, to write a book like that, you know, from an Academy Award-winning documentary, which I actually just saw last night in preparation for this interview. It's, it, it is a very exciting, uh, you know, development. And I can understand why they picked you, you know, because of your novel, The Red Tent, with the, uh, the title words being very suggestive, uh, deliberately, of course. 
the new thinking and more more um, inclusivity and and uh, understanding about menstruation is it's not n new. It's fairly new, but it's it seems it, it took this film to uh, bring to home just how much further there is to go uh, in terms of uh, women's rights around menstruation and and the materials for it. Yes, and people have been raising this issue since at least the early 1970s in almost exactly the same terms uh, about uh, lack of access to products, about the stigma, about the shame that's attached to periods. And uh, in the last, I think, five years, and that's before the, the film was made too, there has been um, a movement largely uh, motivated by very young people, young women in particular, and academics as well, looking at menstruation as uh, a justice issue. That it also, it's, a, it's an issue where all sorts of justice and injustice intersect. And it's a very obvious kind of thing that if, if you are a menstruator and you've been without what the product that you need is and you've been stuck someplace, you know immediately the feeling of panic and fear and what am I gonna do? Um, and then to uh, and then to move that feeling or to identify that feeling with somebody who has absolutely no access, who stays home from school rather than risks being caught out at school with a stain on her school uniform or who can't, whose family can't afford pads. So you, you go to school worrying all day when you should be concentrating on school or trying out for a sports team. So the way that people's lives are limited by lack of access to products is kind of the touchstone uh, and the pulse point where people get involved. Right, and that's what the documentary is about. But uh, your book is actually much broader than that. Uh, it covers multiple aspects of, of the topic, the, the cultural history and baggage, uh, a rallying cry for improving attitudes and practices, uh, recognition for the, and shout outs to substantial efforts underway and gathering steam. But first, with the uh, cultural history, I'm going to just quote from your book. You write, even though menstruation is a natural process, a vital sign, an essential part of being human, a wonder of nature, and a sacred vessel for the renewal of life, from time immemorial, the rendering has been quite the opposite, a dangerous and threatening pollution, incapacity, inferiority, preordained shame. You write that wise men attributed evil powers to it. Pliny the Elder, a Roman naturalist and philosopher in the first century wrote, contact with menstrual blood turns new wine sour, crops touched by it become barren, grafts die, seeds and gardens are dried up, the fruit of trees fall off, the edge of steel and in the gleam of ivory are dulled, hives of bees die, even bronze and iron are at once seized by rust and a horrible smell fills the air. To taste, it drives dogs and infects their bites with an incurable poison. Yikes. And as if that's not <laughs> enough, you also quote some, the grapevine curriculum, you call it, uh, full of whoppers. If you bathe during your period, you won't be able to have a baby. If you touch milk, it will curdle. If a man sees your menstrual blood, he will go blind. You have to change your pad every hour or, or you'll get sick. If anyone sees your menstrual blood, you will become infertile. I mean, just... It's it's really an amazing list. <laughs> I'm sure there are many others. And and I know that is sort of the, the grapevine nightmare. But uh, one of the things I found, which I found really remarkable, was that The Lancet, uh, which is a great British medical journal, I think in the up to the 70s actually said that a menstruating woman, her hair would not accept 
a, um, a permanent wave if she was menstruating, which is baloney, of course, <laughs> but that's not so long ago that this, you know, esteemed journal was continuing these ridiculous canards based on absolutely nothing and based on a complete misunderstanding of women, bo women's bodies, the body that bleeds. Clearly, the editorial board did not include any women or substantial numbers of women who would have just, actually, they probably wouldn't have said anything because it would have been, because we're not supposed to talk about this, because we are supposed to pretend it doesn't happen, because we're supposed to be ashamed of it and protect the rest of the world from the fact that we have monthly cycles, which is nuts, but that's, that's the way it is. That's the way it's been for a very long time in most of the world, much of the world. And you also talk about the euphemisms that are used for talking about menstruation, and they sound kind of either quaint or funny. There are supposedly 5,000 euphemisms, and that's a funny number, but I looked everywhere and it's repeated constantly. So I, I, hope, I hope it's accurate. But, the, you know, the, the, the mother euphemism is the curse. And I, to me, that sort of sums it up to say that this is a curse. This is in Christian parlance, the curse of Eve. And it proves in some ways women's inferiority, women's otherness, you know, that women are not quite human, in fact. And that's the way we're treated because of this natural function without which there is no human life. So, uh, you know, I think it's the great glaring, you'll pardon me, red flag of patriarchy and misogyny that, that menstruation is considered a curse and called a curse. And I, I think maybe the humor in a way is, is a way of fighting back in a symbolic way. I mean, I, I think my favorite one was in France, uh, the English have landed. Yes, which is <laughs> redcoats, we assume. Yes, but there's, there's also when granny is stuck in traffic, I think that was from South Africa. There's um, strawberry, strawberry time and yes, yeah, South Africa. So it's, yeah, there are lots of euphemisms and some of them are funny. And flow. Yeah. In, in the red tent, you, you know, the red tent referring to a kind of menstruation tent where women can go and not be harassed by men and be able to commune with each other and share stories. I guess that's one ideal in a way that women might want to not have to deal with men because they're so unreasonable. I think the vision that you put forth in this book is that, wait a second, wouldn't it be better if men could be educated to realize how normal and and how normal it is and how uh, accepting they could be. And certainly there are men who are. And in fact, the it was a man who created the invention in, in India for making the pads that the movie was about. So, you know, the, in the, the, the film has supportive men in it. Well, first of all, let me just go back a little bit. Yeah, men, men is a whole uh, chapter, menstruation, haha. Uh, but the red tent, the, that image, which I invented, pretty much, knowing that there had been menstrual uh, tents and huts throughout the world in pre-modern uh, civilizations, although I couldn't find much about it at the time when I was working on this book in the mid-90s when there was no internet to speak of. Um, but it wasn't to stay, it was, it was not to get away from men, it was in fact to honor the body that this was a time that, uh, that women were separated from the community with the full knowledge of the community. It's not like they were hiding. Everybody knew what was going on in the tent. Uh, I don't know what you, if there were euphemisms, but you could just say that she's in the tent and that included uh, menstruation, childbirth, illness. So it was a place of care and of conversation as well. 
to me, the, the great, wonderful surprise doing the research for the, this book was to find that there is in fact a real such a thing as the Red Tent uh, among the Bashali tribe. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not the, the, the Bashali is the name of the Red Tent in a tribe of, uh, a small tribe in Northern Pakistan where women do go during their periods in a hut where everybody knows where they are uh, and what they're doing. And an anthropologist got to, a woman anthropologist was invited into the tent and she described it in beautiful detail. Women were taking care of each other. They relaxed, they drank tea, they didn't have to cook. People brought them food. They brought their young, youngest children with them and gossiped. And she described it as a slumber party. <laughs> so there it was, there is, there was, there has been places in, in the world. And, and again, I found similar or analogous kinds of places in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And, and there are examples also among uh, indigenous cultures in the United States, in Canada, in Hawaii, uh, the Maori in, in New Zealand have a whole culture that is being rediscovered and reclaimed. So there is underneath this sort of incipient, uh, mostly unknown way of having periods just be part of life acknowledged and indeed celebrated by the community, including men in the community in some of these cases. Yeah, so it, it's complicated because the very same practice of sequestering the women can be either a, a very uh, positive celebratory time or you know, mutually supportive time for the women. On the other hand, from the man's point of view, depending on the society, it might be, oh, they need to be sequestered because the, the menstruation is dangerous you know, and, and coming into contact with it is, is dangerous. Threat. Yeah, and actually, those examples, those examples, I think, outweigh the positive ones, I have to say. There are some cases, you know, I have a, a, a neighbor who told me that, who grew up in India and just in the last few years realized the reason his mother didn't go into the kitchen for part of the month and asked him to go into the kitchen and do things because she was on her period and you weren't women weren't supposed to prepare food because there was this belief that it, it posed a danger that the milk would curdle or something like that. And indeed, there have been sort of horrific examples in India and Nepal of women dying in menstrual tents and huts that are sent away that are not places of rest, but are places of exile and, uh, and danger. And that in some cases, women, uh, young women in India, in, in Nepal would be sort of banished from their homes because there was this belief that sleeping under the same roof as a menstruating woman was a danger that someone could sicken and even die as a result of it. In India, there are tents and huts in some villages where women are required to go. If they don't go, they're fined and publicly acknowledged and humiliated to some extent. Um, so so it, it, it runs the range. And in our enlightened civilization, you're just supposed to be secretive about it and you're never supposed to mention it and never talk about it, which is clearly not as extreme, but there's this sense that there's something wrong with you, that it's a shame, that there's something you have to hide, which is really starting to loosen up largely as a result of listening to 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 year old girls talking about periods who've become menstrual activists is just like mind blowing for people who are older than them because they just seem to have rejected the whole notion of shame and they are, they are leading the way. <laughs> it seems that the main emotions relevance are shame on the one hand and uh, and disgust and and both of them 
are very much learned emotions. I mean, the, the capacity is not learned, but the object of shame or the object of disgust is very much uh, a learned response culturally and, and within the family. And as such, it it's sh- sh- not just theoretically, but is reversible. And not just within not just within the family. Yeah, peer groups. Oh, for sure, absolutely. And, and the medical profession, of course, the medical profession is is no longer all male. But um, the examples continue to be kind of shocking that with more women, not just entering the medical field, but also teaching other doctors and also setting policy, you have the sense that menstrual, menstruation is a vital sign for people who have periods, like blood pressure, like, uh, like your temperature, like oxygen, that, that when you take a medical history for somebody who is, is about to has or, or is menstruating is to ask, what, you know, how is it with your period? What kind of pain do you have? Does it incapacitate you? Because pain, menstrual pain has for a very long time been dismissed as mostly in your head, take an aspirin, uh, you'll be fine, don't complain. And there are many cases where women who have, have suffered for years with endometriosis and other kinds of serious painful conditions that have been dismissed by their physicians in, in large measure because their physicians were never taught or, or even considered that, that, this was, uh, that this was a signal that there's something wrong. That is slowly starting to change and doctors in, in medical schools are slowly starting to include this in the curriculum, but we still have a long way to go there too. Yeah, and that's part of, I think, a broader pattern of uh, doctors tending to dismiss or overlook women's pain more than men's. Right, and it's even worse if you're for people of color because there's been this prejudice which until which could persist that black people don't suffer pain as much as white people do. Um, that's been shown in surveys of medical students, which is as horrible as that sounds that in, in the real world, that means that um, a woman who shows up in the emergency room with a lot of pain or uh, bent over is Im- the first question she gets asked, which is, this is anecdotal, which has happened way too often. You know, ha- are you drunk? Have you, are you on drugs? Uh, those are the first questions that get asked as opposed to where is it hurting and how long has it been hurting you? We're still in that place. We're still, I'm afraid, for women of color uh, and for poor women, especially who don't get regular medical care, they're at greater risk of serious side effects that could have been, and just pain that didn't have, that, that, does, that they didn't have to suffer. So let's talk now about period poverty, which is uh you know, large portion of your book and uh, it gets into what's re- related to the documentary. So what do we mean by period poverty? I'm trying actually to move away from that language to period and to menstrual injustice. Period poverty generally um, refers to the fact, to the phenomenon that, that the people who menstruate don't have access to the products and the, not just the products they need, but clean water, safe bathrooms, ways to um, get rid of their their menstrual products after they've used them in, in a sustainable kind of way. So lack of access, uh, the cost, the high cost of menstrual products. If if you're um, a family with more than one menstruator and you're on a very tight budget, if there's a choice between buying food and menstrual products, it's going to be food. So there, there's that part of it, which is which is real and present, and a great organizing point. Period poverty. Also, I think uh, the the term also includes the fact that it's taxed at, uh, in in many places, it's taxed as a luxury rather than a necessity. And in the United States, sales tax, which is what kind of tax we're talking about, 
is a state by state, and in many cases, cities also levy sales tax. So people make choices about what is considered a luxury and what's not. So just to get out of the United States, in Germany, until recently, period products were taxed as a luxury at like 17%, and books and cut flowers were taxed at 10%. There was a very clever campaign where, I, I, I believe it was an advertising company working with a, a menstrual product company made a book in which menstrual products were hidden, sort of a hollow book. And so it was taxed at 10%. And, the, and as, a, as a result of the media attention to that, the tax on menstrual products was, was lowered to the same as other necessities like theater tickets, which were taxed at 10%. The same thing happens all over the United States. I think in Texas, until recently, I, I'm pretty sure it's still true, you don't have to pay sales tax on, on a gun permit, but you do have to pay sales tax on menstrual products. So it's where your priorities lie. <laughs> right. And I, I gather that women are organizing more effectively than ever um, all over the world on this issue. Yeah, they are. Um, and again, I think, I, think this is the, I think this is the result of two generations, one and a half generations, onto the third generation of, um, of feminism uh, around the world, of women, uh, of also women being educated, taking positions of authority and power in some places, and bringing this up and not letting it go. I also think social media has had a, has had a hand in this as well, that making, making obvious, making public all kinds of injustices, some of them really horrific, like in, for people who are incarcerated, menstrual products are used as a, a cudgel, actually. Um, if you don't have enough of them and you bleed through your, your uniform, you're punished for that. But if you don't have enough to begin with, you're sort of stuck. And, and, and there have been uh, firsthand accounts of women in, in incarcerated about the ways that prison guards have used access to, med uh, to menstrual products as, uh, as a bar barter for sexual favors, there's uh, in some in, in some prisons where they say, oh, we have we, they're available here. You have to buy them at the canteen, and some people it's a choice then between calling home or buying menstrual products. And the menstrual products are not what you buy in in your supermarket. They're they're of very uh, inferior quality. And I guess one area that we haven't talked about is the availability of of menstrual products in schools it ought to be standard. And I guess that's part of the movement is to make it as standard as, as toilet paper. Right, right. I mean, certainly uh, pooping and menstruating are quite different biologically, but you know, both of them involve sanitary needs. Yep, absolutely. And you know, the, the big sort of jokey question is, are you carrying a roll of toilet paper with you everywhere you go? And most, no, nobody is because we trust that in public accommodations, there will be public accommodations, there'll be toilet paper, there'll be water to wash hands, there'll be paper towels, there's a receptacle to get rid of the towels or, or an air dryer. Um, by not having menstrual products, the weird subliminal message is, what are you doing here, you know, in the bathroom, if you need something that we're not providing, or you're, you're here on sufferance rather than, than being seen as a human being. If, if women are really human beings, then their physical needs should be just as obviously taken care of as other ones. And the thing with schools is this is an area where there's been enormous prog progress. In the last month, uh, California has mandated period products in all schools. I think grade school through 
college, public colleges there. Uh, and this is happening on a state by state level. This is again, a state by state thing. Uh, and city by city, New York City uh, had a had a program, uh, a sort of a pilot program, which showed that girls' uh, absence rates went down when products were available for them in schools, and it became a state mandate. Its enforcement is still, I think, there needs to be some research to see if it's if it's being enforced. But this is happening, especially on campuses, on college campuses of all kinds, where students themselves have gone to the administration and demanded that there be period products in the bathrooms. And I, I still get my Google alert on menstruation every day. And this happens in every possible kind of college from the Ivy League to state schools to small Christian parochial schools in the Midwest, every kind of college, every kind of university. And also in high schools and in junior high schools, students are saying, why aren't there products here? And in synagogues and churches, um, young people are saying, why aren't there products here. So it brings periods menstruation into the public discourse in a way that's kind of safe, right? We're not talking about patriarchy, misogyny, shame. We're talking about access to a product, which is a safer, cleaner way to talk about uh, periods, but it at least brings it into the public, into the public domain. And it's less of a secret than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's such a concrete issue, and it, it does have that advantage. And if society as a whole is, is able to accept that, that half the population does have a need, that the other half doesn't have it, that doesn't make it any less important. And it's uh, it's it's really, it, it, it's a kind of like a, a wedge in the positive sense, not a, not a wedge issue, but a wedge to create uh, more understanding and support. And and the other thing that's lacking in terms of understanding and support is health education, which is so severely lacking. So in the movie, Period and Sins, it brings up the lack of health education so that that uh, that ki young kids who are about to are of menstrual age or boys also of that age have absolutely no idea what's happening to their bodies. And the number of stories of girls having their periods and thinking they had cancer or dying. And that that's not just in India. That's a story I heard from Charleston, South Carolina, from a large Jewish community. One of the girls saying that she, she heard one of her friends saying that, that she had no idea what was happening to her. And she thought there was something really wrong with her. So the lack of education about what's a human, what happens to human bodies is shocking and it causes such unnecessary pain and fear and suffering and we just need to be teaching about this, talking about this, norm normalizing menstruation. And I guess that's where uh, there's an intersection between uh, ignorance and superstition and you know, the, and fear. So you have the the fact that it's blood, I think automatically gives us a kind of fear response if it's not understood. And, and then there's all the ideas about, well, what does that blood mean and, and how does that intersect with the um, the capacity for giving new life and is, is it new life is it but is it life is it death is it uh, it's it's kind of very rich with uh, with meanings right right blood is life uh, and and when it blood is spilled it blood is also death because that's in in war and battle spilled blood is is death it means the end of life so it's a very complicated, substance and uh, in, in, in human imagination, it's been understood and misunderstood and, and turned into a cudgel and also turned into a source of sustenance. 
in, in countless ways because it's so, it's so essential to who we are, blood. And this is one of those kinds of blood that, that we're really not supposed to talk about. It's not seen as life-giving, it's seen as pollution. Most, I think, in, in, for a lot of people, it's seen as pollution, is discharge. Yeah, getting back to uh, school's situation, one of, I think, the most uh, you know gripping, if I can use that word, parts of your book is hearing about girls that are afraid to get out of their seat because they realize they just started menstruating and the teacher has called on them. It's better to be insubordinate and not, and not get up and go to the blackboard than to risk that kind of uh, humiliation. Yeah, there's a great story in the book that a, a young woman wrote um, who was actually in a, a Catholic parochial school where um, she was called upon and she, she said she didn't want to get up to the board and he insisted, her teacher insisted, she got up and there was a pool of blood on the chair and he was mortified and she actually at that moment said, ha, huh, and she walked out and went to the nurse's office, got taken care of. And that made her, that radicalized her and made her into a menstrual activist. And she, uh, she talks to her cousins now and she explains to them what's happening to them because nobody explained to her. The conversation is widening all the time. That I'm afraid that situation of, of fear and shame and worry, having, having an accident with, you know, with staining your, your clothing with, with menstrual blood is an accident. It's not a catastrophe, but it is a catastrophe. It shouldn't be a catastrophe, but it does feel like a cat catastrophe. If we can lower the temperature on that, and you know, it's embarrassing maybe, it's something you'd rather not have happen, but it's not the end of the world. It's not something you stay home from school for three weeks because you don't want to show your face. It's not cause for suicide, which it has been linked to in some cases of girls being mortified in school by their teachers, not just by fellow students. And um, you know, I, I, it's always hard to, I, I hesitate to say this is the cause, but certainly it was a precipitating reason, it seemed in at least a couple of cases of suicide, one in India and one in Africa. And if there's one, there's certainly gotta be more. Um, where where girls within a day or or less within hours of that kind of mortification actually committed suicide and it's it's heartbreaking it's unthinkable it's terribly unjust. You you also talk about the use of language. I'm really curious about that. That there's certain kinds of language that may have connotations that are unwanted if you want to normalize menstruation. So the examples you give are sanitary napkins. Uh, advertising, uh, advertising them as fresh or carefree. So w w which kinds of language would you say are, are inherently or potentially stigmatizing and which ones would be better? Well, those are, those, those are euphemisms. I don't know that they're um, stigmatizing, but what they do is they, it's like you want to whisper about them. My favorite or least favorite is feminine hygiene. So feminine, that term is pink, right? <laughs> it's flip. Uh, flouncy and uh, and not particularly strong, let's say. And hygiene also puts it into the category of uncleanliness. So there are hygiene um, programs that that supply hygiene products, and which include toothpaste and wipes and things not just related to menstruation. But when you say feminine hygiene, you're making menstruation into um, into something that. Is dirty, right? The opposite of hygienic, of unhygienic, of hygienic is unhygienic, which means unclean. Um, so, for example, so if you walk into any large drugstore, drugstore chain, the feminine hygiene aisle is like a big sign that says to men, in particular, "Don't come in here. This is not for you." 
So there are stores, there's actually this huge chain in, I believe it was Australia, changed the names. They're called period products. The sign on the on that on that aisle is period products or menstrual products. So if you can just call it what it is, as opposed to having to whisper around it, then I, I think that's um, that's a kind of subtle cultural shift. I mean, at the beginning of let me just say at the beginning of uh, sort of the public selling of period products in the twenties, it was Modess had an ad. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, a, a magazine ad that if you cut out a coupon, you could just hand it to the sales clerk and you wouldn't have to ask for what you needed. And it doesn't say anything on there except, so you don't have to say the words out loud. They will wrap it in a brown paper package and give it to you. And no words need to be spoken because this is unspeakable, right? This is an unspeakable topic. Yeah. I'm trying to think what the analogy would be with, let's say, for, for, for pooping. I mean, what would be the equivalent of, let's say, if toilet paper were name something else. It, it'd be like if you were too embarrassed to buy toilet paper and you you had to take it in a, in a, in a brown paper bag. It's It's been normalized. It's just, um, there was a time before toilet paper. <laughs> and at some point it became um, a commodity for sale and people made a lot of money on it. And it just became something you bought next to the, it was in the same aisle as the, as the paper towels, right? And the cleaning supplies. But, but there are euphemisms though. I mean, we don't, usually say laboratory, we say bathroom. Right. And in England, you say water closet. Water closet, right. Yes. I mean, there are thing, other things besides, people also go into bathrooms to bathe and to wash their hands as well as to eliminate. And the French, the French, God bless them, have pissoir, which is a, a kind of a bathroom. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about the indigenous ceremonies for marking uh, I'm not sure if you pronounce it menarch or monarchy. I, I like menarch, but there's a big debate about this, but menarchy is also in use. So you, you, you mentioned a few of them in your book. Could you tell us about some of them? Sure. Well, the, the, there's a tribe of uh, Native Americans in Northern California, the Hupo, Hupo tribe, um, which had for generations something called the flower dance, which wasn't just a dance. It was actually a community-wide acknowledgement of a girl's coming of age, which included her learning the skills that one needed as a, as a woman in that community about creating things, cooking, about making clothing, about beading, about weaving, whatever the, whatever was there. And, and it included a physical test. It included running. It included running through quite a, quite a long uh, passage, barefoot through water and stopping and dancing. And the community was with her. She was not alone. She was not isolated. She was not sent out. And at the end of it, there was a big, there was a big celebration. There was a powwow. There was dancing. There was food. And this, like other indigenous beautiful ceremonies like this, were stamped out by colonizers and Christianizers who saw all of this as pagan and filthy and uh, uncivilized. And it was sort of, it was forbidden for a long time, and then it was forgotten. And in the last generation or so, the last two generations, women have reclaimed it, have studied it, have found out how it was, uh, have, have interviewed elders who still have memories of this and have not just recreated them, but, but reshaped them to respond to needs in the contemporary world. Indigenous women are, are the most at risk for murder and sexual violence, for dropping out of school for illness. And this is a uh, this is seen as a counter to that. This is a seen as a way of 
of honoring the strength uh, of, of girls at this moment in their lives and of letting those girls know that they belong to a larger community that is with them and is always with them. It's a very powerful one and, the, and the, its loss and its retrieval are both stories of, they are shame, they, we should be ashamed of what's happened to these communities and also the recreation, the reclaiming, um, the reshaping of them to, to honor and to serve the moment, to serve people in the, in the present are to be applauded and supported. So I have a question, but and I'm going to ask you the question, but then I'm going to identify the station and then we'll tr try to tackle the question. And the question is, if uh, if our society, Western society, or American society could come up with a, a ceremony, a public ceremony for, for Menarch, what would it be? Because that's, that's the question. I don't know if a ceremony is even the right thing because we're, I don't know if, as a society if we're very good at making ceremonies other than, let's say, football games of the 4th of July. But um, my, my wife, Leora, um, remembered that we had given Amalia a book, the little, my little red book, which is a book of, uh, of uh, many, many memoirs of Menarch by, you know, hundreds of, of young women uh, written by an 18 year old. Well, I shouldn't say written, but compiled by an 18 year old. So that certainly could be, you know, uh, that's more, more of a private celebration, I suppose. It does seem to be, uh, you know, it's a momentous time in, in any uh, young woman's life. And there don't seem to be a lot of uh, celebrations of it, whether it's in religious or secular uh, settings, for the most part, I think. I mean, maybe I'm sure there are exceptions. I, I don't think and there's ever going to be a one size fits all kind of ceremony that's even, you know, with, with modifications for different kinds of communities. And it's, we're at the very beginning of this. I, I there are period parties. Um, some of them are sort of imposed by mostly mothers on daughters because they want their friends to come and give them blessings or they want to have a party with tampon shaped cookies. And, you know, there's a whole kind of let's make money on this. This is America. Uh, you know, capitalism will find a way to sell almost anything. And then there are, you know, very private things and where mostly mothers will take a daughter who's just had her period out and just the two of you lunch or spend a day hiking someplace together, whatever is meaningful to you. And, or parents who, I know parents who sent flowers to their daughters on the occasion of their periods, or parents who, with the brothers at the table, announced that this has happened and, you know, made sure that everybody congratulated her. So I don't think there's going to be a one size fits all or even a, you know, a one a template that fits all. It's, it's good to share stories, good stories. A friend of mine who's from Sephardic Jewish family, uh, when she got her period, was invited to her grandmother's afternoon coffee for the first time. And then she was also allowed to wash dishes with her older cousins, which she said, which doesn't sound like a reward, but it meant that she was there for the gossip and that she was being treated as a member of this community of, of women, of young women who had sort of crossed a line. So there are lots of subtle ways of doing it. You know, there are more sophisticated, there are more commercial, uh, there are more humorous ways of acknowledging this as well. And to me, the more the better, the more it's out in public, the better, the more we can um, acknowledge this gently, quietly, but acknowledge it, however it works for you, for your family, for your community. It's good. And I suppose it gets folded in uh, to coming of age rituals in general for both sexes. So uh, 
in this part of the country, uh, in the Mexican American community, we have quinceañeras, which is you know for 15 year olds, which is uh, a little bit older uh, than m when most women start to menstruate. Yeah, actually, I I actually tried to do some research about this. Quinceañera is really about marriageable. Yes, it is. Um, it's it's far enough away from the onset of menstruation. There are parts of the world where parents will hide a daughter's menstruation because they're afraid, because they are then marri marriageable, no matter how young they are, that a 13 year old is, is now considered a mar of marriageable age and parents who don't want their daughters to stop going to school, whatever, um, will keep it a secret for as long as they can. Uh, but for quinceanera, that's, it's a much more, uh, unlike bar and bat mitzvah, which you never really mentioned sexual coming of age, but that's, that's kind of, it's implied. The the quiet. It's a, it's implied. It's never acknowledged. But and one of my teachers once said, you know, it's the it's not just the child coming of age. It's a family changing. You now have a, a, the, one of the children in your family is now capable of reproducing. Um, on, you know, at least theoretically, that that the whole family is different now. It's not just that child who has um, has moved into a different stage of their physical life, but the whole family has changed in some kind of unspoken uh, but real way that there's a shift into a new relationship between parents and children and siblings and grandparents and all of that so yeah it's it's not talked about but it is part of the it is part of that shift you yeah, one of the the more um i don't know if i want to use the word charming or poignant uh, moments in, in the film was watching the uh, squirmings of groups of girls and of groups of boys when mentioning the topic and being asked questions, the basic questions about the even just the biology of it, and just how difficult it, it was uh, to be uh, for them to be straightforward about it. there was so much uh, embarrassment. The thing that really shocked me was that the boys actually had absolutely no idea what was being talked about. Zero, really, really didn't. And some of the men too um, clearly didn't want to talk about it. But there were men who didn't have a clue what this was about. It was, it's really not talked about. And one of the reasons that the girls don't know much is that their mothers weren't taught either. Um, and that, it, that this kind of silence and, and ignorance about the human body, lack of knowledge is passed on from generation to generation, which is heartbreaking and, and dangerous and dangerous. So uh, that, that process, I think of of raising the issue made everybody in the community more aware. Actually, at the beginning, if you remember at the beginning of the film, I think the women told the men they were making diapers um, so that so that they could get it started. And then afterwards, they explained that it wasn't really diapers. It was menstrual products. It was pads that they not only could use themselves, but have a kind of micro business and sell them at a very low low cost to, to their neighbors. Um, and have have um, a way of making a little bit of money and also of um, taking control of their own lives. So, you know, so the product there is not just um, a way of making money. You really do see it um, transforming the way women understand themselves as actors in their communities and as active in their economy as well. So it's um, it's not just a pad either. <laughs> Yeah, you really could see the joy in the women's faces who were involved in this project. I mean, just how excited they were to be doing this. It was such a such a positive uh, project uh, on all fronts. It's you know that word empowerment, which gets overused. I mean, that really that's really a vivid example of uh, of empowerment. And 
over a subject that is so disempowering, right, is to make this into a business, a communal activity where women connect as as partners in, a, in an enterprise. Uh, it, it has, and, th and then talk to their families, their children, their sons and their daughters about what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's transformative. Yeah, later in the book, you, you write this, uh, misogyny, nonsense, and squeamishness are not going to disappear anytime soon, but they are treatable conditions. Given the opportunity, men and boys will admit to confusion and embarrassment, ask for information, express outrage at menstrual injustice, and even laugh at themselves. And uh, it's a wonderfully optimistic view, and I think both the film and your book do uh, put forth some optimism about this, that uh, they've given the opportunity, given the information that both uh, both men and women, boys and girls can learn to see this as uh, so normal and, and uh, the, the, the needs are normal and the solutions are normal. It's, it doesn't require huge leaps of any kind, uh, really, and, and yet it is. Yes, um, we have we have centuries and eons of silence and uh, stigma and shame to overcome. And yet, uh, again, uh, listening to young adolescents just refuse to see this as anything but normal, and uh, and see it as their right and responsibility to others to make sure that everybody has what they need um, and get active. And I I um, I've had the opportunity in the last few months to be on calls with young teenage girls who are activists and who have changed not only their lives and the way they think about things, but their parents and their communities' lives so that people are talking about this. And even to the, to the smallest extent, I mean, I've especially talked to some young Jewish women and the synagogues that they belong to now put period products out all the time in all the bathrooms, not just when there's a wedding. And... And I tell everybody that you can do something yourself. You put period products out on the vanity in your bathroom where guests come. Whether or not anyone ever touches them, by putting them out there, you make them visible in a way. And you you seed the idea that this is something that should be normalized and should be everywhere, even if it's almost um, subliminal. Yeah, and I think it really helps that there's something concrete, to, to repeat myself, <laughs> concrete to do about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's very doable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very doable. And... Um, you know, in terms of young men, a friend of mine was visiting her 20-something son who, uh, who was in his own apartment, and she noticed there were period products out on the vanity. And she, she said, he doesn't have a female roommate, he doesn't have a girlfriend. She said, why, why do you have them? And he looked at her and said, because somebody might need one. And she, a longtime activist, sort of, you know, hit her forehead and said, of course. Um, but it, it was part of his generational... Um, it's part of a generational shift. It's certainly not widespread enough, but it does exist, and it is it is growing to see this as normal, to to not see it as um, as something you whisper about. There's, and I and I know you know in the book there's a lot of humor that really rips a hole in the silence and and reveals just how stupid and how easily we can in fact rip the curtain off of this and laugh and learn together. Yeah, it's almost as if uh, the whole world has uh, this, has thought that you can't cross over the crack in the sidewalk. <laughs> you know, and so it's wait a second. Of course you can. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, look! I can. Look, you can. Of course you can. I can step on that crack. Nothing happens. <laughs> so, what's been the response to your book so far? 
it's gotten a lot of uh, radio attention, thank goodness, and some, and you know, it's gotten nice reviews, which is great. And I know that it's um, slowly finding its audience. Um, the COVID has made it hard to share in a way that that you um, that you can actually get the book into a lot of people's hands. I think the response is good. I think the response is the, the response to this book is part of a larger response to. Oh my goodness! Why is why are things like this? This is this is not so hard to fix in some places. Certainly not where we where we're sitting from you and I. Um, that in our institutions, that in our school systems, and in our libraries and public facilities, that these products should be available for everybody, and that taxes should reflect the necessity of this, and that you know on and on that when um, your state legislature has a bill in front of it, as Massachusetts does now, where I'm sitting to make sure that there are period products everywhere, including in uh, prisons and homeless shelters and other other kind of public facilities where people don't really have a lot of choices. So that, you know, we can write to our legislators, we can put out products, we can uh, donate to organizations that are, that are doing this work, not just locally, but globally. Um, you know, this is a public health issue. If you think about what's going on in a refugee camp, if you, you know, if you put yourself in those shoes and then think you got your period and there's no bathroom and there's no products and you know it's a, it's a month of running water it's a monthly it's another monthly crisis um that that's really tough i'm just curious did the pandemic i know the pandemic caused a run on toilet paper um did it also cause a run on menstrual products well what happened the pandemic you know uh periods don't stop for pandemics is one of those slogans and the need for people who can't afford them became really acute so there was a lot of um i don't think there was a run on them because they're expensive uh and for people who really need them and couldn't afford them the, a lot of organizations local organizations understood this um and started to make sure and, and would make period packets and bring them to to organ to organizations that work with um, communities in need communities of color where people were not able to afford even food necessities much less these necessities so and the pandemic actually revealed a lot of period injustice. One of the stories from China, from Wuhan, China, early days, the the medical people, personnel in the hospitals, um, the the women in the front lines, the nurses, didn't have period products, and they asked for them, and they were sort of they were told we can't we can't be bothered with that. We can't. We have more important things that we have to to um, to supply you with. And somebody uh, saw uh, an posting somewhere online in Hong Kong and she she just organized and sent a, a ton of products as, as she could and she embarrassed the government so the government then started to send period products so the pandemic has has revealed in a lot of ways uh, menstrual injustice um, and menstrual needs and so but I, I I've never heard of people uh, hoarding menstrual products I haven't I haven't heard of that I'm sure in some somewhere somebody did but it was not the toilet paper run or if there were you know what we wouldn't know about it because nobody would have talked about it nobody was making jokes on the tonight show and late night talk shows about menstrual products and i guess another aspect of this is just the i would imagine that they're overpriced oh they're very expensive yeah very expensive and do they need to be well and there are, and there. They, what's interesting is there are many more period products than there used to be. Before. There are period underwear which can be reused, menstrual cups 
which also can be reused. They tend to be expensive. These products tend to be expensive. Um, it's a right. very high upfront cost. They, they're cheaper in the long run, but if you have to spend $35 or $40 for a menstrual cup, that's a lot of money if you're on short, if you've got, if you've got a very tight budget. So, and, and reusable pads are also uh, re- washable pads that can be reused cloth, which limit um, some of the, the waste products. So they're also in the public eye again, uh, which is good. Yeah, but they are expensive. It's, uh, I don't have the numbers, but they're, you know, if you, if you add up what someone spends over the course of a lifetime or even over the course of a year, it's hundreds of dollars um, over the course of years, many hundreds of dollars. And if you've got three people in your household who menstruate, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And you're not spending, when you go out to, when you go out to shop or when you go out to school or you go to work, you're not, you're not buying that toilet paper, right? So, but you, but you have to bring your own period products with you. So you don't get a break. Right. So that's part of the justice issue right there. Yeah. And then there's the whole cost of the packaging, uh, most of which oh. is unnecessary in, in the kind of obsession with uh, purity and, and sterility. You know, does each pad have to be wrapped, for instance, in plastic? Well, right. And then there's, there's tons of, there's tons of waste issues here. I mean, the, the amount of, of uh, the tonnage of waste uh, in any given country of menstrual waste and, and the amount of plastic involved in it. And that finds its way into the oceans. I mean, it's part of the larger waste catastrophe that we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're creating for the planet. So let me just do one more quote or one last quote before we, we uh, end in just a minute. Uh, you write, menstruation is not the curse. Shame is the curse. And shame threatens the health, well-being, and lives of millions. But shame, which has long seemed universal, hardwired, and inevitable, is starting to lose its grip. Yep. <laughs> yes. It really sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's... I, I'm struck by popular culture's um, embrace of this topic of, on, on sitcoms and on certainly comedy, uh, comedy shows, the, the willingness to, to, to just mention it in some cases to mock the kind of lengths to which people hide uh, is 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 part of is part of the end of shame yes the fact that we're having this conversation on your radio show is part of that uh, so we're 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 seeing a shift and i there's a book published in um, 1974 called the curse which sort of says you know we're at the beginning of change it's going to happen Things are going to change, and it's a long time ago, 1974, but and not much happened for many for many many years around that. And now we are seeing. I really think it's generational. I think it's the result of a couple of generations of of more empowered women and their daughters and their sons also seeing this as as what it is as an injustice, unnecessary, causing unnecessary suffering. So it sounds like there's good reason for hope, and at least in this area. Yes. <laughs> We got to hold on to hope. <laughs> we sure do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anita Diamond, the author of Period End of Sentence, the new chapter in the fight for menstrual justice, and uh, a New York Times uh, bestseller novelist. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Totally my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. 
We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.